and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one peaceful page of Talmud a day. I don't think I'll be exaggerating if I said that today's daf, Yoma 9, contains what may be one of the most important teachings in all of Talmud. It's about what happens when Jews start hating another Jews, when we let our political or religious opinions and practices tear us apart instead of bringing us together. Have a listen. However, says the Talmud, considering that the people during the Second Temple period were engaged in Torah study, observance of mitzvot, and acts of kindness, and that they did not perform the sinful acts that were performed in the First Temple, why was the Second Temple destroyed? It was destroyed due to the fact that there was wanton hatred, sinat chinam, during that period. This comes to teach you that the sin of wanton hatred is equivalent to the three severe transgressions, idol worship, forbidden sexual relations, and bloodshed. The Talmud doesn't mince words here. The temple, we're taught, was destroyed because we didn't learn the most basic lesson of all, which is this, when you let your disagreements fester, when you let differences curdle into animosity and hate, when you engaged in raw and stupid tribalism instead of coming together, well, it's just as bad as idol worship and bloodshed all rolled into one. And if we're being really honest here, we're all a little bit guilty of it, especially nowadays. We're all a bit too quick to take to Facebook or to Twitter and post sneering missives about people who see the world slightly differently. We're all a bit too happy to turn up the dial in that conversation with friends at the slightest hint of disagreement. And if we want to avoid another major disaster, another destruction of all that is sacred to us, we need to train ourselves to think and act differently. I speak, sadly, from experience. I make a living writing opinion pieces, and often these columns of mine are fueled, I admit it, by sheer rage. I hear or see or read something that makes me angry, and I react. I savage those who have other ideas about life, too often assuming, as too many of us too often do, that there are bad faith actors out there to cause harm, not just decent folks who come by their different ideas honestly. And let me tell you, every time I do it, it feels bad. So a while back, I decided to do something about it. I invited someone to be my guest on our other podcast, Unorthodox. His name is Jay Michelson, a writer and thinker with whom I've always had, shall we say, a very complicated relationship. Jay and I don't see eye to eye on pretty much everything. Ask us about Israel, about American politics, about being Jewish or observance, or just about everything else, and you will get two radically different sets of answers. But I sensed that there was a deep passion that united us, a spiritual love for Judaism's wisdom, and that maybe this love, the love that brings us to open up the Talmud, say, and look, if not for answers and at least for the right questions, maybe that love we share could help us heal and avoid sin atchinam, this baseless hatred. We talked for an hour and a half and then aired the entire conversation unedited and unorthodox. We didn't exactly convince each other. We're still polar opposites pretty much. But we showed each other and our listeners, and just as important, ourselves, that we can have a disagreement 
that brings us closer, not turns us into enemies. You could go back and hear the entire conversation. We put a link to it in the show notes, but here's a brief taste of it. And if you liked it, do me a favor. Pick up the phone right now and call someone, someone who sees the world in a radically different way, and do your best to open up the mind and the heart and have a real soulful conversation. Because as today's page of Talmud reminds us, it's the only thing that could save us. Have a listen. And I agree with what you said before of Israel being the sort of canary in the coal mine, but but I think it was a canary in the coal mine and an actually kind of much more um, perverse almost way because Israel is probably the first uh, battlefield or the first arena in which maybe the only significant uh, struggle of, of our century, or at least of this part of it, uh, is being played out, which is the struggle uh, not between left and right or Israelis and Palestinians or secular and religious people. Uh, it's a struggle between what the British sociologist, whose name I'm now blanking on, I think it was David uh, Goodhart, um, termed as the struggle between the anywheres and the somewheres. Uh, you know, I think many on the left in Israel, in Berlin, in, you know, Baltimore, wherever, uh, believe that uh, life is best lived um, when it is uh, a collaboration between educated uh, people who share these universal values uh, and could just as easily pick up and leave and do their jobs and feel at home, uh, you know, in Paris or Shanghai or Tel Aviv or anywhere. Uh, as opposed to the somewhere, to so say, well, actually, no, look, we have a very specific set of values. These are our values. You may not like them, uh, and nor are they necessarily racist because, you know, we invite uh, any group that wants to partake in it, partake in it. But, like, this is our shared history. This is our place. We want to remain here under our conditions, which a lot of the times to to the left is, is, is utterly baffling. I'm thinking, for example, in Israel about um, the recent refusal of uh, the, the court to allow a, an event geared specifically to the Haredi community in the city of Afula to have segregated seating. Uh, here's a community of religious Jews that said, like, here's what we believe. We want there to be segregated seating. And the court, the Supreme Court said, I'm sorry, you can't. Because universal values say that congregation, like to me, that's just lunacy, and to me, this is what the Israeli society is 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 going for. It's not necessarily thinking that the Palestinians, you know, uh, have some sort of essential point of view that's A or B. Those things, I agree with you, politically can change, but it is saying, hey, look, uh, we're not going to impose these universal progressive values in our situation because they simply don't fit. I mean, those are nice words, but at the end of the day, you did dodge my question, right? There's there's two million Palestinians living under, if you don't want to use the word occupation, Israeli military rule and surveillance. You can't police that kind of population without force. It's impossible. Force is going to, you know, to, to make the omelet, you have to break a lot of eggs, right? Force is going to kill a lot of people. What do we do with the existential situation? So, like, sure, I get everything that you said, but, like, it would also be simple as pie if it weren't for the growth of the settlements in the last 10 years. It would be pretty easy to more or less divide the territory where the population centers are to put to create the conditions where Palestinian moderates can flourish instead of creating the conditions where they look like traitors or worse. 
and not have this daily violence and daily humiliation. Uh, at the risk of sounding uh, like a walking, talking cliche, I, I reflect back on said disengagement that you mentioned uh, a while back. Uh, you know, I look at Gaza. Uh, I look at uh, a situation in which Israel did something that was deeply painful on many levels, uh, showed, I think, uh, tremendous courage in taking that risk. It was a risk that I supported at the time, although I would be honest, I regret doing so in retrospect, uh, and received in return uh, a regime still supported uh, by the population there at large uh, that uh, took every ounce of goodwill that the international community and Israel would give it and uh, translated it into uh, murderous hatred. Now, right, but these Ar- conditions Ariel may Sharon change. did the disengagement so that you could say those sentences X years, number of years later, right? It was Sharon who did this. It was a right-wing tactic. The disengagement wasn't a model for Oslo or any other peace process. It was a heat not coot. It was an unplugging. But it Oslo like didn't work either. Pulling out. So, so again, think nothing if seems we created, to work. If we created, Oslo was working all right until Rabin was assassinated and then Bibi was elected. No, but then you had it Barack was, it was who working, went to Camp it was David. Working, it was working okay. Uh, Camp David is a anyone who's on the left who doesn't acknowledge Yasser Arafat's role in bringing about the destruction of the Palestinian people doesn't know their history. Everyone on the left needs to own that, and right. very few of us do. And, and Abu Mazen is only Ab- only Ab- slightly Ab- behind Ab- him in, in that term. He was better before Bibi screwed him over so many times. But anyway, that's a detail. But the, what happened in Gaza was is not a model for how to help moderates thrive. Right? There needs to be serious investment. It can be little economic growth and having a better job. But actually, if you track that, would there be a Trumpist phenomenon if there weren't a disenfranchised white working class? I, I don't, I get the anywheres and the somewheres. That's also a reflection on Brexit. It's a reflection on Russia. It's a reflection on, right. on Trumpist, Trumpism mm-hmm. in America. It's a reflection on Brazil Hungary, and on the Philippines. France, anywhere you look. This whole, this whole revanchist nationalism is in part about that. Um, to me, the looming conflict of the 21st century, though, is climate refugees. I mean, there could be up to half a billion people leaving Bangladesh, people of color, brown people, migrating to places that have not been particularly right. hospitable. By the way, those are not two mutually exclusive. That's right. Conflicts. No, yeah, no, you're right. We could have our war and fight it too. You're right, yeah. exactly. And and so to me, the, what we're seeing now is just a, a pre-shock, if that's a word, whatever the tremor is before the earthquake. You know, when we see just a little bit of migration from Mexico and from the Middle East, Middle East into Europe, Mexico, the United States, look at what's happened. Look at the right. nationalism that's reared its head. And, I think we're about to see the real. And now we're going to see the real thing in, in 20, 30, maybe 10 years. Right. And it's terrifying to contemplate that. But maybe that was an aside. Again, I, for me, my question to you, and I, I knew we wouldn't get past the first one, is just squaring that with a real spirituality. I mean, if you're having a, if you're having an experience on a, I don't know if you want to talk about which medicine is your medicine of choice, but if you're having a, a psychedelic experience on your medicine of choice and the heart is open and you, you, you feel your own pain that's there and, you know, you've had a unusual <laughs> life, you know, like, you know, with family stuff and, and I, I have two, not as unusual as yours. And, we feel that, and we know what suffering is, and we know what pain is. I just well, I think the thing that that and and I say this sincerely, I think the thing that uh, separates us from the uh, shall we say from the worst angels of our respective uh, political sides to the extent that we each still feel at home in these political sides, which is less and less and less with every passing day, right? 
uh, it's it's precisely the refusal to let go of this realization, right? It's a refusal to let go of this pain, which is why I am not willing to uh, uh, overrule or or sort of disregard the possibility that one day uh, conditions in the Palestinian Authority will change. And by the way, I believe very firmly that they must change from within. I don't think it's Israel's job or the international community's job or anyone's job to tell any one nation how to navigate or negotiate its affairs. But I'm very open to the idea, and in fact, somewhat hopeful, that this is a conundrum I'll have to face one day, that the Palestinians would uh, indeed uh, come to some sort of realization that they have a very specific path that is uh, significantly different than the path that they have taken, or that their leaders have taken too many times in the past, Arafat and Abu Mazen, for whatever reason, uh, and and come uh, to to negotiate or or to kind of approach uh, Israel in a, in a different light. If that happens, I'm, I'm not going to tell you under no circumstances will I support X, Y, Z. I'm very open to it. There's, there's no, not a question in my mind that would be like, well, I would actually really want to but assess when, the when situation. When has any oppressed population like done that evolution? I mean, it's like these guys are living under daily humiliation and at best humiliation, you know, at best inconvenience when you have to wait three hours to get from Ramallah to Jerusalem. Like, that's the easy stuff, let alone, you know, you're living, you know, we both have youngish children, right? I mean, you know, when your own home isn't actually secure because there's a, a police force or a military force that is not accountable to you in any way, that is even, and I'm doing the which, best Which, by the case. way, describes also the, the Palestinian Authority's government, which is well, at least horrendous. All right, I don't want to go down that path. Yes, they're, they're not great. At least there's some mechanism of accountability. At least there's some semblance of democracy. I would here, say, here, you know, right, right, Abu that's, Mazen again, being that's a, a fact, year that's a, 12 of a that's a four fact, year term. That's a fact quibble. Yeah. So we can set that one aside. I, I just, at the end of the day, no matter anything else, I come back to just the, the existential reality on the ground. And the condition that you've set for changing that is so high. I can't think of another population in the world that's been asked to do as much as you're asking this subjugated the, the population Jews in Israel to have, do. And they've no, done no, no. The level of oppression that, that since, since 67, certainly, the level no, but of... I'm talking of like pre-state, right? Uh, yeah, very but I'm talking like recent. I'm made. talking about like what's happening kind of now-ish in the general last few decades. There's just, I still, what I'm hearing as the answer to the question of how do you square the spiritual peace with the suffering piece is this sucks, but life is tough because I'll, sometimes two groups really just can't work it out, and so I'm going to choose my group. I guess my reading of history as well as my emotional orientation— You refuse to accept that. I don't believe it. I I don't, it's not a matter of refuse to accept. Refuse to accept implies that part of me knows that's true, that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and groups have to stick together and stick up for themselves, and it's my team versus your team. I just don't believe that that's true at all. You don't I don't think there's any conflict that's intractable. There's you don't definitely think there's any kind of... There's definitely part of human nature that can go in that direction. Um, but I don't believe that that's the only part of human nature. If I did, God, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be teaching meditation for a living, which is what I'm doing with my, my time now. But I, I also, I don't know, I just that's an incredibly despairing point of view. I guess what I can say is that in America... We narrowly had a tie election the last time, and one person believed exactly what you said. The other person didn't. Your guy won. I know you're not a Trump supporter, no. at least you haven't been. But the guy who said what you've just said, which is the sort of standard nationalist, ethno-nationalist line that, that we have to stick together in our group, 
um, and we're fighting other groups. That guy's who's winning. I mean, you See, know, like, like Shimon Peres said, you know, we're living in the smoking or the non-smoking section. Look who you're, who's, who's living in right, your but, section. But, but I, want, I, I, want to, I want to interject here because I actually don't think that – I agreed with half of what you said. Yes, uh, I do feel very strongly – we're living in this, you know, tribal reality. Let's just do and, more psychedelics and, then. Like and, and, well, <laughs> open up to like that, let me, the truth. Let me get my Sorry, wife on I the know, line. I interrupted. I couldn't see, resist. I and couldn't see resist. If, if that is uh, a workable. So Five MEO DMT. Hey, we're not going to, uh, I'm not going to be able to pick up the kids from school for the next 18 hours. Because I'm going <laughs> to be tripping on acid. Uh, no, but, but what I wanted to say is like that I actually feel it's being a little bit unfair because I think for me, um, I'll tell the story this way. Um, there's there's a, an amazing book by Vasily Grossman who I absolutely love. Uh, he, once he wrote Life and Fate, uh, the Soviets took it away. You know, the great kind of uh, battle of Stalingrad novel, uh, the Soviets took it away. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Studios. If you enjoy this show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. I'm your host, Leah Leibowitz, and our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scarmuccia. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at TakeOneDafYomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.